is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll take a few of them, take many of them if possible, and turn them into stories right here on the show and put them up on the satellite so you can hear them too. Also, to hear all of our material and our best each week, our five best stories each week, Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And send the link to friends. What we're doing here is special. I think you know it. Share it with friends. And anywhere you can, talk up what we're doing. We appreciate it. And so, too, does your station. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan. Some of you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're certain to be captivated by. ...in their dealings with... Oh, yeah, my glory, that's a beautiful love story. While watching a movie with my wife in the family room one evening, we were interrupted by our 16-year-old son, Tommy, who walked in and sat down with us. Politely, he said he had something important he wanted to discuss with us. As I turned off the TV, I quickly imagined all the possibilities of something terrible, disastrous, or difficult that could force a 16-year-old boy to sit down to talk with his parents about anything important. My wife, with her eyes wide open, sat silently while we all got settled in to hear what he had to say. I could not remember his approaching us like this before, and my expectations, coupled with my imagination, made me feel very uncomfortable. He began to tell us about a friend whose cousin attended the New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico for high school. That cousin is now a captain in the Green Berets and is teaching math at West Point. Tommy was very impressed by that and said he wanted to go there for the remaining two years of high school. He talked about the academic standing of the school, the numerous activities that were available, and the challenges he felt the school would present him. As he spoke, I was still unprepared for the ending of his story. Calmly and ever so smoothly, he discussed his desire to attend such a school and pursue a college education that no doubt had a military career as its ultimate destination. His mother countered with a gentle return to reason when she said, You're going to a fine private high school here in the Bay Area. Why would you want to leave all of your friends? More straightforward questions came from me like, are you unhappy? What are you on, drugs? He said he was prepared to leave his friends as he would make new ones at the school. And though it was a military school, he was not enlisting and would still be a high school student. He returned to talking about the courses and activities offered by the school and its academic reputation. He thought the discipline and focus would help him be more successful. It was obvious he had done his homework and it was evidence of how seriously he took this idea of leaving home, traveling and living at the school, and taking on a rigorous academic and physical regimen at 16 years of age. Young though he may be, he had reached a fork in the road in his life that his mother and myself didn't see. We asked, why would he want to be going to a military institute that sat out in the middle of the New Mexican desert? It was their reputation, he said. In their one-year cadet prep program, 97% go on to one of the military academies. Out of a total of 900 students, 90 went on to the military academies. He thought that by doing well at NMI, 
He could pick any college he wanted to attend, and after graduation from college, become an officer. I began to suspect that he was bored living under the shady trees amidst a wealthy suburb south of San Francisco. A bedroom community offers little excitement, punching a time clock, working at a retail store, or hanging around with your friends, playing with your phone while living at home is a lot less adventurous and exciting than traveling around the different places, living within a community where 30% of the student body is international, 100% are former military, and meeting the many challenges that the military presents. We reminded him that home and community are important for his development. They are nourishing, sustaining, and necessary foundations for his life. But. Like bread, they can often become stale. It wasn't love or nourishment that was missing. He just needed more room to grow. Finally, I just had to get to the point. I asked him, what's this all about? I said, I got no problem with the military, but why not do ROTC in college? If you want to go in the military, why do you need to go down there and do this? It was a moment of silence and a calm, self-assured demeanor. He looked at me. And without any doubt or hesitancy in his voice, he said, Dad, I am not going to go to Stanford Business School, and I am not going to go to Harvard, and I am not going to spend the rest of my life working in an office. I want to be a captain in the Green Berets. I was speechless. There was nothing more I could say. And at that point, I was done. I was sold. He said he wanted to be an officer in the Green Berets, work in special operations, and be fluent in Arabic. He wanted to be a leader and not a follower. He had heard from his friend's cousin that these men don't need to find themselves. They do that every time they're standing in a doorway, getting ready to jump out of a plane. I asked him, are you prepared to jump out of a perfectly good airplane over Nigeria? His response was a simple yes. I could see the look in his eyes were infused with his youthful imagination and romanticism. But I knew he meant it. I understood how he felt, and though I thought it was a little early, I reminded myself that after all, it's just high school. He's not going off to war. I knew too that regardless of how far down this path he goes, he will benefit from making this decision and will learn a lot about himself in the process. This was his decision. He looked into his own incipient life and realized that he needed to find a different path to take him to a different place. He didn't know where that place was located, but his imagination convinced him that it existed. He just had to find it. And when we come back, more of this terrific story from Bob McClellan. By the way, go to the McClellan Files at OurAmericanNetwork.org and you can hear all that Bob does what a terrific storyteller. And by the way, if you have a storyteller in your town that you know can just, well, hop out stories, send his or her information to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org because we know there are great storytellers all over this great country. More of the McClellan Files after these messages. This 
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we last left off with the McClellan Files, a young man, a boy, having a dream in his head, a vision in his head of leading a team overseas in the Green Beret and making that next important move to go to military school. Let's pick up where we last left off. As a parent, I learned eventually I could not really direct my children's lives anymore. Oh yeah, I could influence or coerce them, but I was no longer the director. In this conversation with him that night, I realized I'd become a spectator. I always believed as a father that the best I could do was to prepare my children to set their direction in life and be ready to live with the success or failure of their choices. Now, I would have to honor that belief. Consequences exist in the world of adults while children are protected from them. Families, like ours, create barriers and boundaries and walls trying to keep out the grimmer and grimier aspects of society. But to do that, we risk becoming imprisoned inside the walls, holding on to the illusion that we are safe and in control. We sent our children to private schools, put alarm systems in our house, and were careful about who we invited into our home. But still, we know that no one is safe. We pick their friends, pick their school, and where they can go, but at some point, we can no longer be there to make their decisions or supervise every activity, place, or person that comes into their life. The point has to come where either I release him or he just jerks his hand out of mine. Troubles like drugs, teen suicides, mental illness, or just being lost living at home with mom and dad have permeated through the porous walls of his school. He sees some of his peers already making these dangers a lifestyle, and it is one of the reasons why he wants to leave. These dangers may be hidden among the many tomorrows of his future. It was becoming apparent to me that Tommy is not just running to someplace, but running away from someplace. I thought my wife and I would make all of his decisions, but at some point I know we won't be there to help him. To manage these serious difficulties, he needs many attributes to get him through, and resourcefulness sits at the top of that list. Resourcefulness is an attribute that is part of the military bedrock. Planning for the unexpected, adapting to fluid situations, and working with limited resources are integral parts of military training. Our natural instinct at home is to nurture our children. It is our duty as parents, but being nurturing is not preparing them to be self-sufficient and independent. Eventually, the breast runs dry and is incapable of providing nourishment for a man. The appetite becomes too large when your son is six feet tall and shaven. Without realizing it, Tommy's decision is one that will help him develop the ability to take care of himself. Wow, what a concept. Choosing for oneself which side of the wall is right for you is a decision we all have to make. Tommy chose the risk of being on the outside rather than being inside in the safety of the center. His confidence impressed me as evidence of both his desire for independence and self-reliance. Regardless of the outcome, this is his choice. If he gets down there and doesn't like taking seven classes a day and training in 100 degree heat in the desert, then that's just too bad as far as I'm concerned. I am sure this experience will teach him to be very selective about what he chooses to do in the future. He will certainly learn his limitations down there as well as his capabilities. 
Video games and drugs and alcohol hold no allure or excitement for him. At NMI, he is not allowed to even have a smartphone and internet access is controlled by the school. He leaves all those attachments and appendages here at home. There is no use for them at the school. They will write letters instead and carry a flip phone. The school seems to have a policy that I embrace. Less is more. I told him that the door only swings one way here and other than leave or come home on vacations, don't come back until you finish. He said, no problem, Dad. I told all my children when they turn 18, three doors will appear in their life. The door to college, the door to the military, and the front door. And they're gonna go out of one of those three doors, for sure. And Tommy, he's the last to go. Afterwards, my wife discussed the conversation with me, and she asked what I thought was driving his decision. My answer to her question was that he was bored. A high school campus full of kids that all grew up together becomes a very small world. Church for teenagers, every Sunday, boy, that gets routine real fast. Faith eventually fades away. Teachers telling him all day what he's to believe doesn't challenge him to think for himself. He doesn't learn to solve real problems but rather digital or paper ones. In the novel All Quiet on the Western Front, Paul Bomber exclaims to his former teacher after returning home on leave from the front lines in World War I, you never taught us anything really useful, like how to light a match in the wind or make a fire out of wet wood. Sometimes it is the practical and not the theoretical education that is important. He wants to take classes to fly a plane, experience scuba diving and rappel out of a helicopter, run an obstacle course and learn about teamwork from teachers who spent many years in the military. He's not interested in being a digital cartoon characterization action figure. He wants to be a real one. He wants to be a Green Beret no less. Those ideas and dreams lie far out in the future. Though they may never materialize, I am comforted that he has some starting point in his life. These are questions his mother and I have discussed with him since that night. The questions that he could not provide answers for, he told us he would find them when he gets there. It was so apparent to me that my son was becoming someone else. I could see his hunger for adventure and challenge was contained in my most favorite quote of all of literature, Shakespeare's play, the Taming of the Shrew. It introduces its hero, Petruchio, who, while riding into Padua, is greeted by a friend from his hometown, who asks, Oh, hail Petruchio, what winds blow thee to Padua? He answers, Such winds that scatter young men through the world to seek their fortune farther from home, where small experience grows. These are the words that help me understand my son's decision. I worry about his mother and how she's feeling about the prospect of her son leaving home at 16. She was unprepared and not happy about a separation so soon from Tommy. Our other son, Bobby, had left for college a year earlier and she thought she would have Tommy for two more years. The idea of spending 20 years as a mother and then watching them leave home is a painful experience for any mom. But his desire was so credible and so sincere that she could only say yes. She said she could not be so selfish as to stand in the way of her son seeking to make his life matter at 16. 
She always said that she put her children first. Her commitment to that devotion puts her into the selfless position that how her children feel is more important than how she feels. So she is preparing herself for what will be one of the most difficult sacrifices she can make for her children. What a fine example of love that is. For me, I grew up in and served in the military as did most of my family. And though I will miss them, I accept the idea that life is a journey through a strange land and each obstacle that's overcome becomes a transition to the next place in life. This challenge will expand the margins of Tommy's life and test his capabilities. When we finally informed Tommy that he'd been accepted and that he could go, I had a sense that I would see a lot of Roswell, New Mexico over the next couple years. I think my wife will insist upon it. And what a terrific story, and as always, beautifully told and written by Bob McClellan. Go to the McClellan Files at Our American Network to hear all of his work. And by the way, again, if you know a storyteller in your town, in your city, in your community, and you know who they are, there are a few people who can just really write and tell a story. Send their names to us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, thanks to our proud sponsors of the show, MyPillow, and that's MyPillow.com to order their terrific pillows. And there's a 10-year warranty on these pillows. They're guaranteed not to go flat. They're 100% machine washable and dryable. And best of all, they're made right here in the United States in Minnesota. The founder, Mike Lindell, well, he's committed to having their operations in our country and in his hometown of Chaska, Minnesota. And by the way, my wife and I use them faithfully and fight over which is which. We often get confused and end up, well, just having arguments over who was whose. And now I'm actually, we got names on them, so that can't happen anymore. Hopefully, we'll see. That's MyPillow.com, MyPillow.com. And mention the word stories or pull the stories word down in the menu bar. This is Our American Stories, The McClellan Files. is our American stories and now we turn to another powerful story from Horst Schultz, the German immigrant who was laughed at for wanting to work at a hotel and went on to co-found the Rich Carlton. And by the way, you can hear the original life story of Horst by going to ouramericannetwork.org and just putting his name or the Rich Carlton in the search bar. It is one heck of an immigrant story. Horst is the author of Excellence Wins, a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise. And his Rich Carlton pursued and achieved excellence. They're the only hotel company to win the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award. And they won it twice, which only one other company in any industry has ever done. Here's Horst on the idea of serving others. We, we all talk about service. L- let, let me define service for a moment. It, it starts the instant you make contact. 
it doesn't start a second later. It starts, in fact, within nine feet. Why? Because within nine feet, you make decisions about somebody and they make a decision about you. Uh, the behavioral analysts say that uh, a person relates to you with, and, and makes a decision when they come within about three meters, nine or ten feet. That's when you make a decision that instant. So you want to make sure that that instant, a positive decision goes into their subconscious. In fact, uh, we have an interesting study. Uh, in the very beginning of Fritz Carlton, we had comment cards, which is not very scientific, but I had about 400,000. When I was dealing with Chede Power, I, I knew Dave Power at the time very well. He said he wants to step out of the automotive, and we were the first company that they actually did something with outside of automotive. I said, well, Dave, I have those 400,000 cards here. I'm being told it's not a very scientific study, but, and he said, well, give them to me, we'll see what we can find. He came back and said something very interesting here. Whenever the first contact was good, that means sales or reservation, doorman, front desk or bellman, when that was good, never ever did a complaint follow. Never ever. Whenever there was one negative in the first contact, always other complaints followed. So in other words, you can put people into a subconscious positive. If the first contact immediately happens to be well, and nine feet is a very important because that's when the decision is being made subconsciously. Subconscious is stronger than conscience. So it's a very important moment. So we taught from there on, whatever you're doing within nine feet, you look at the customer and say, welcome and eliminate, in our case, we said, eliminate words like high. Because I want to tell the customer immediately, you're important to us. If I say hi, I'm saying we are equal. If I say welcome, sir, welcome, I'm saying you're important to us and I am very professional. I'm giving two messages here, which creates trust. And then, of course, we taught our people to eliminate two more words. Don't ever say folks, guys, etc. And don't say okay. In our case, say I'm delighted to or it's my pleasure. So right away, this kid that I had from inner city becomes a very elegant young man that we put into credit uniform, credit, because if I hire that kid, he now, the next day, is facing the chairman of the board of the Bank of England. How am I going to make sure that interaction happens right? If I eliminate those three things, high or whatever, dude, guys, folks, and okay, now all of a sudden there's a very elegant young man there. And then it continues with complying to the guest wishes. And that complying is very simply that. I'm in that moment, it's not about me anymore. It's not about my company. It's about my customer. I'm now here to help that customer to make it the right decision for him or her. It, that's how I'm complying. I'm here to be an assistant to that guest to make a great decision for themselves. And then it ends by saying farewell. 
That is service. Welcome, comply, farewell. Now, if people talk about a great service, ask them to define it. You haven't even given it thought what it is. That's why you don't receive it. If you happen to be lucky and you happen to hit a, a nice person, not by design of the organization. And that is wrong. It has to be designed by the organization. That there is service delivery. That means attention for the benefit of our customer. You know my relationship with Chick-fil-A, you know. Uh, and Dan Cathy, who is, of course, Chick-fil-A is an exception, exceptional company, exceptional people. Uh, Dan asked me one day, Do have you... Uh, he tells a story slightly different. I know that I'm right how I tell it, but they're, they're very close to the same, the two stories. One, one day he asked me, have you been in Chick-fil-A? I said, sure. So, so what do you think? I said, well, you're the best of a lousy lot. And he said, what? <laughs> he said, well, you're not great, but you're better than the rest of them. And we discussed that. And, and then, of course, he asked me to kind of teach these people and deal with them. And we did a lot of things together. And one thing was I had a meeting with his managers, all his vice presidents in their headquarters, talking about verbally how do you talk to a customer. And first of all, you should look at them within nine feet and say, hello, good morning, welcome, and so on. So I was explained to, to Chick-fil-A, now, you have to eliminate the, uh, okay. We use my pleasure. And I think this is wrong for your market segment. Let's find a different word. And we were, everybody agreed it was not the right word for Chick-fil-A. My pleasure was too fancy. And we kind of discussed it when suddenly in the back of the room, somebody raised a finger and said, I like my pleasure, which was true. Uh, the, the owner, the, the founder, this great gentleman, I like my pleasure. I said, yeah, yeah, but you know, but it's too sophisticated for Chick-fil-A. Uh, Mr. Cathy, that was true, Cathy, it is too, too sophisticated, it, it, you should, he said, I like it, that ended the discussion, by the way, <laughs> guess what they're saying, they're saying my pleasure, and, and implemented some other criteria of service, which then will tell anybody that I was successful with, to help them with, and, and uh, now, they didn't become an exceptional company because of me, but those are the little things that I had them with, including the, the my pleasure thing, which they became famous for. I was wrong. And now I didn't tell him to use my pleasure. I was against it. You know, so anyway. And you've been listening to Horst Schultz, co-founder of the Ritz Carlton and author of Excellence Wins, a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise. And these stories are powerful. And I can just imagine what that must have been like. Two of the great titans, business and retail business guys in the history of America, certainly of this past 50 years. Truett Cathy and Dan of the Cathy family of Chick-fil-A and Horst Schultz, people from such different walks of life, from such different places coming together to figure out how to better serve their customers. And that's what's so beautiful about free enterprise. Uh, you have to compete for that customer and work hard. And so few people do this well. So many places we walk into and there's no eye contact. 
and there's mumbling and there's okay and dude and guys and why talk like that? And a remarkable thing he said about the subconscious positive and that first experience trickling down to all the others and how, well, let's face it, we all know this, the subconscious is stronger than the conscience. The story of Horst Schultz continues here, and we're going to have many more from him. And again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear our full story on his life coming to America and how he built this remarkable enterprise. And get his book, Excellence Wins. Google it. Heck, go to a bookstore and buy an actual book. This is Our American Story. Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories about everything in all walks of American life. And this story is the story of a comedian, and we've told a few before. Stephen Wright is most famous for his slow, deadpan one-liners. Born and raised in Massachusetts, he cites comic George Carlin as his main influence. His 1985 comedy album, I Have a Pony, was recorded at Wolfgang in San Francisco and Park West in Chicago. Thanks. I used to be a parking attendant in Boston at Logan Airport. I parked jets. They let me go, though, because I kept locking the keys in them. One day I was on an 86-foot stepladder trying to get in the window with a coat hanger. <laughs> I was arrested today for scalping low numbers at the deli. <laughs> Sold a number three for 28 bucks. <laughs> I was once walking through the forest alone and a tree fell right in front of me and I didn't hear it. I used to be a narrator for bad mimes. I live in a house that's on the median strip of a highway. Very nice grassy area, I like it. The only thing I don't like about it is when I leave my driveway, I have to be going 60 miles an hour. <laughs> I have a microwave fireplace. I can lay down in front of the fire for the evening in eight minutes. Well, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? Sometimes you can't hear me, it's because sometimes I'm in parentheses. <laughs> Are there any questions? <laughs> Feeling kind of hyper. 
about four years ago, I was... No, it was yesterday. <laughs> I went to the hardware store, I bought some used paint. It was in the shape of a house. I also bought some batteries, but they weren't included. him again. I had trouble going home from there because I had parked my car in a tow-away zone when I came back the entire area was gone. One time the police stopped me for speeding and they said, don't you know the speed limit is 55 miles an hour? I said, yeah, I know, but I wasn't going to be out that long. Before we get back to this legendary comedy routine, let's hear from Stephen about his writing style. The audience doesn't care about style or anything. They just care whether it's funny. Because I was, you know, I, I had more normalish material. 80% of it was like what I'm known now. But even within that, they would, if they would laugh at some of it and wouldn't laugh at other things so they, it wasn't how I was doing it it was the actual piece of material and I, I just thought abstractly that's just how I wrote I didn't think a, a planet I mean that that type of material was just funny to me I didn't think about how I talked I didn't think about how I looked I didn't think about anything all I thought about was material so then when I went on stage I was scared because public speaking I was so nervous and I had an ec extra blank face because I was afraid and I was trying to say the joke the right way and trying to think of what was the next joke it's very serious to communicate stuff to the audience and then that just like went together kind of meshed like just by accident Wright knew from a young age that he wanted to be a stand-up comedian when he would often dream about performing on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Well, I started watching it. I was like 14 years old. I was watching it every night, and my fantasy became to, to go on that when I was like 17. It was like, that would be, you know how a kid wants to be a baseball player or an astronaut or something? I wanted to, that was my dream, not knowing that it would ever happen or anything. So then I'm in the club and stuff, and a guy from The Tonight Show saw me in Cambridge, Peter LaSalle. I was doing it three years, and he saw me in the club, and then three weeks later I was on the show. So I'm 26, and I'm there. It was totally surrealistic. He was really nice. He talked to me before I went on. He was very, you know, I, he could have been saying, we're going to ax to you, and we're going to put your body in different states after the show. And I would have said, yes, that's, that's fine. That's fantastic. And so... You know, that's still a highlight of my entire career. I've done stuff after that, but that's my favorite thing ever. Now let's go back to Stephen Wright's first comedy album, I Have a Pony. I went to court for a parking ticket. I pleaded insanity. <laughs> I said, Your Honor, why would anyone in their right mind park in the passing lane? I asked him if he knew what time it is, and he told me, and I said, no further questions. (laughs) 
going to court next week. I've been selected for jury duty. It's kind of an insane case. 6,000 ants dressed up as rice and robbed a Chinese restaurant. I don't think they did it. I know a few of them, and they wouldn't do anything like that. Years ago, I worked in a natural organic health food store in Seattle, Washington. One day, a man walked in and he said, If I melt dry ice, can I swim without getting wet? <laughs> Two days later, I was fired for eating cotton candy and drinking straight Bosco on the job. Well, I figured I'd leave the area because I had no ties there anyway except for this girl I was seeing. We had conflicting attitudes. I really wasn't into meditation. She really wasn't into being alive. <laughs> I told her I knew when I was going to die because my birth certificate has an expiration date on it. photograph on my license taken out of focus on purpose. So when the police do stop me, they go, here, you can go. One night I stayed up all night playing poker with tarot cards. I got a full house and four people died. telescope on the peephole on my door so I can see who's at the door for 200 miles. <laughs> Who is it? Who is it going to be when you get here? I got an answering machine for my phone now when I'm not home and someone calls me up, they hear a recording of a busy signal. My house, I'm supposed to get seven years bad luck, but my lawyer thinks he can get me five. <laughs> I like to skate on the other side of the ice. I like to reminisce with people I don't know. Granted, it takes longer. I like to fill my tub up with water, then turn the shower on and act like I'm in a submarine that's been hit. And I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day, because that means it's going to be up all night. And that's the work of Stephen Wright. We celebrate his work, his life here on Our American Stories. We've all also done the same for Steve Martin, Don Rickles, Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, Mitch Hedberg, and Joan Rivers. Go to ouramericannetwork.org 
Listen to what we did with all of them. You'll hear some of their routines. You'll hear from them personally about how they do what they do. Stephen Wright, his material, his story here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We will produce them, and we will play them back. They are some of our favorites. The American people, you, our listeners, are terrific writers and storytellers. In the annals of American capitalism, there is probably no crazier wilder, more chaotic boom-to-bust and back-again phenomenon than the Comstock load in the 1860s, the richest couple of square miles on Earth. This small section of dirt changed the destiny of the United States. Here to tell this rags-to-riches frontier tale is Old West historian Roger McGrath. McGrath is a professor in Southern California and the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. Here's Roger. If ever there were real-life figures who could have been characters in a Horatio Alger novel, it was the Silver Kings. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien, and James Flood epitomized the rags-to-riches American dream. John Mackey is the engineering genius of the Silver Kings. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to New York in 1840. He reaches the California gold fields in 1851. He enjoys hard physical work and mining camp life. He has almost no formal education and had stuttered badly when young, but he is blessed with extraordinary intelligence. James Fair is a mine superintendent without peer and a shrewd financier. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to Illinois during the early 1840s. He has enormous energy, a trenchant mind, and a natural aptitude for all things mechanical. He joins the gold rush to California in 1849. William O'Brien is born in Ireland in 1826 and brought to New York as a small child. By the time he joins the gold rush of 49, he has grown into a large man of erect carriage. He will soon have a head of prematurely white hair. His size, posture, and hair give him a dignified appearance. Unlike his partners, he is soft-spoken, with an avuncular, kindly quality about him. He is the least forceful of the Silver Kings, but his gregarious and genial nature make him the most popular and ideal for public relations. James Flood is the only Silver King not to have been born in Ireland. He's born in New York in 1826, shortly after his Irish immigrant parents arrive. He catches the gold fever in 1849 and sails around the Horn to California. He has a quick wit, a shrewd mind, a volatile temper, and a powerful drive to succeed. He is a genius in trading stocks 
and in finance. Mackie Fair, O'Brien, and Flood all spend the early 1850s prospecting and mining in California, and each has some success. With his earnings from the diggings, O'Brien opens a marine supply store in San Francisco. Flood, with the money he has made, opens a livery and carriage shop just down the street from O'Brien. Both lose their businesses, though, in the Depression of 1855. They then join forces and open a saloon. O'Brien reasons the only thing that does not go down in the Depression is the consumption of alcohol. He's right, and their saloon thrives. Flood handles the business end of the operation while O'Brien greets customers and serves roast beef sandwiches that come complimentary with a drink. By the early 1860s, Flood and O'Brien are dabbling in mining stock, buying and selling shares in mines that tap into the great Comstock load in Nevada. Flood has an uncanny ability in stock trading. Within a few years, he and O'Brien amass a small fortune. In 1868, they open their own stock brokerage office in San Francisco. Mackey and Fair, working separately, also spend the early 1850s prospecting in California. Here's Comstock Load historian Ronald James speaking to us at the location of the historic Comstock Load strike. The first miners who came here were after gold. Gold's easy. Gold doesn't combine with many things, so you can actually even pick it out of, the, of their washed dirt with tweezers and you hope for a nugget, but you find little flakes of gold. And that's how you can pull the gold out. What they weren't expecting was anything else that would be valuable. The two miners who were coming up here, a couple of Irish immigrants, were just looking for a good place to, to dam up a, a natural spring so they could get water because they were placer mining like the original California gold miners of, the, of 1849. And they were hoping that they could find some water, throw some dirt into their uh, long toms, which were these wooden boxes, and wash the dirt. While they were damming a natural spring they found, which was right up here, they started throwing some of the dirt in there and found immediately that they were uncovering several ounces of gold. And it was a very good day, and it was the first of many good days. In fact, 20 years worth of good days. They were complaining for those first few weeks after the strike in June of 1859. These early miners complained about this blue mud that gummed up their works because as you wash away the lighter soil, it leaves gold behind, but it was also leaving behind this blue mud that was really obnoxiously heavy and it was hard to separate it from the, from the gold. So after several weeks, they took a, an ore sample over to California and said, what exactly do we have here? And what they found was that it, if you had a ton of this stuff, it would produce over $800 in gold when gold was selling for $16 an ounce. But what was really surprising that it was that it would produce over $3,000 in silver when silver was selling for $1.60 an ounce. And so that's really where everyone understood just how wealthy this ore body, or using the Cornish word load, was. And then it became known as the Comstock load. When they learn of the Comstock load strike at Virginia City, they head over the Sierras to Nevada. The people who came to the Comstock were an international body of, of people. Nevada actually had, in, in the 1870 census, more foreign-born per capita than any other state in the nation, you know, more than the great immigrant 
states of you think of Massachusetts and Boston and New York and how vibrantly international those places were, Chicago. A lot of Europeans, obviously, a large group of Chinese uh, lived in, uh, here. Uh, they, they came from all over. They often arrived as single men. And so it, it was a, a very masculine community. And when we come back, more on the lives of these four risk takers, James Flood, John Mackey, James Fair, and William O'Brien. The Silver Kings. The story of the Comstock Lode continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of John Mackey, James Fair, James Flood, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. Let's pick up with Roger McGrath, where we last left off. Mackey works as a pick and shovel miner for $4 a day, then as a timberman for six. Soon he develops his own business, excavating and fortifying tunnels. Much of his pay is in the form of stock certificates. Now, most of these prove worthless, but a few give him enough money to buy the Kentuck, a mine whose ore has supposedly been exhausted. Mackey sinks a new shaft in the Kentuck and hits a rich deposit. During the next several years, the mine pays over a million dollars in dividends, huge money in the 1860s. Mackey also has said he will retire as soon as he has 25,000 in the bank. Well, now he has many times that, but his appetite has only been whetted for new adventures and enterprises. While Mackey is working the Kentuck, James Fair becomes superintendent of the Ufer, one of the richest mines on the Comstock. In 1868, he enters into a partnership to develop new mining properties with Mackey. I'm standing at the base of the Ofer pit, and they called it Ofer after Ophir, the gold mine of King Solomon in the Old Testament. By asserting that this was the Ophir mine, they were claiming that this was a mine of biblical proportions. And they got it right, because hundreds of millions of dollars came out of the ground beginning right here. Back in San Francisco, Jim Flood and Bill O'Brien take notice of these two young upstarts on the Comstock. Soon they are discussing joining forces and in 1869, the San Francisco stockbrokers and the Comstock miners form a partnership. By the early 1870s, through wise investments and daring gambles, the four Irishmen are challenging William Ralston of the Bank of California for control of the Comstock. In 1872, they buy the Consolidated Virginia Mine for $100,000 from Ralston's right-hand man in Virginia City, William Sharon. Sharon gleefully reports to Ralston the Irishmen have been taken. The Consolidated Virginia, says Sharon, is a bankrupt piece of property. Over a million dollars has already been wasted in the mine in fruitless exploration. Mackey and Fair have a hunch if they cut a new tunnel at a deeper level, they will hit a vein of ore. For several months, they tunnel, pouring 200,000 into the consolidated Virginia, but hoisting up nothing but worthless rock. William Sharon roars with laughter. 
Then one day, Mackie and Fair hit a delicately thin vein of ore. They try to follow it, but it disappears. They find it again, but again it disappears. They find it a third time. This time the vein begins to widen to a foot, to several feet, to a half dozen feet, to 12 feet. Mackie and Fair send word to Flood and O'Brien in San Francisco. The stockbrokers quickly buy up as much outstanding consolidated Virginia stock as they can. The deeper the new shaft is sunk in the consolidated Virginia, the wider the vein becomes. At the 1,500 foot level, the vein is more than 50 feet wide. The ore is so rich, waste rock has to be added to it to put it through the stamp mill. The Irishmen have discovered the very heart of the Comstock load, what is called the Big Bonanza. For the rest of their lives, they are known as the Silver Kings. Here again is Ronald James. In 1873, they found what was called the Big Bonanza, which was a, a, a huge deposit of gold and silver that if Virginia City wasn't famous before, and it was, it then was permanently famous. And I'm not sure without the Big Bonanza, we would have the Cartwrights and the, and the television show Bonanza. Here, the, the Comstock load, the combination of gold and silver, started expanding as they went underground to five feet, 10 feet, and at its, at its widest, up to 60 feet wide of nearly pure gold and silver. I mean, obviously mixed it with some rock, but you had, to, you had to dig it all out. You couldn't stop doing that. The problem is you cannot find a log stout enough to span 60 feet, even 20 feet without snapping, because it has to hold up a mountain, and mountains want to collapse in on empty space. So. They brought in a German immigrant by the name of Philip Didesheimer, who developed the square set timbering method. And it was basically a series of cubes that uh, could be in modular fashion added to so that whatever the stope, the empty space left over when you dug out all the gold and silver, whatever that stope was shaped like, you could fill it up with a stout framework of timber and then you would fill it back with waste rock as you dug even deeper in, inside the mine. So it was a really nice, stable way to support a mine as you were pursuing precious metals. And that was exported throughout the world. It's only the first of many inventions, flat wire cable, the safety cage. This was the first place where uh, dynamite was experimented with in a big way underground. Uh, it was the first place where uh, uh, air compressed drills were used. Uh, so it became one invention after the next that defined international underground mining for the next 50 or 60 years. By 1875, the Silver Kings are fabulously wealthy. The Consolidated Virginia is paying dividends of a million dollars a month, something like a hundred million in today's money. San Francisco is seized by a speculative mania. If the Consolidated Virginia has hit the big bonanza, other mines might also. Thousands of shares of mining stock trade daily. People make and lose fortunes overnight. Charwomen buy the hotels they scrub floors in. Hack drivers give away their carriages to live on Knob Hill. Chinese gambling dens close because Chinese are gambling in mining stocks instead of Fantan. From 1873 to 1882, the Consolidated Virginia yields $65 million in gold and silver and pays $43 million in dividends, more than $4 billion 
in today's dollars. Here again is Ronald James. The, the deepest shaft here dropped over 3,000 feet, 3,200 feet. That's over a half mile, a straight elevator drop. And keep in mind, this is in 1870, 1880, when most people have never ridden an elevator anywhere. And to, to imagine these people being dropped down over half miles straight down, it, it, it really is something. There was a law on the Nevada books that said it's against the law to talk to a hoist operator. He was the fellow who, who was running the, the spool as it lowered the cages down. And it's, it's illegal to talk to a hoist operator while he's working, because if you distract him and he's off by 10 feet, that, that could be fatal to the, to the guys in the cage as they drop down. The Silver Kings all live riotously well and die with multi-million dollar estates. William O'Brien contributes to charities and supports all his close relatives, especially the McDonough and Coleman families of San Francisco. James Flood buys San Francisco real estate, erects numerous buildings, funds new business ventures, and establishes the Nevada Bank. The Nevada Bank later merges with Wells Fargo. He donates large sums to charities. He and his wife and their children live on a fabulous 35-acre estate at Menlo Park. James Fair is elected to the U.S. Senate from Nevada, but spends most of his time accumulating real estate in San Francisco. He becomes the city's largest taxpayer. He also establishes two banks and a railroad. John Mackey forms a telegraph company, lays a cable across the Atlantic, and breaks the Western Union monopoly. He makes more millions. During his lifetime, he gives away more than five million in gifts. He also tears up IOU notes worth more than two million, like for giving 200 million in today's money. When the great fire of October 1875 destroys the central part of Virginia City, including the town's Catholic Church, St. Mary's of the Mountains. Mackey donates much of the money to have St. Mary's rebuilt bigger and better than ever. During a slow period on the Comstock, Mackey secretly pays a Virginia City grocer to supply provisions to any miner out of work. He also is the largest contributor to Sisters Hospital, requiring only that his donations be kept confidential. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien and James Flood demonstrate that Horatio Alger characters were not confined to novels, but were found for real in America. And there you have it, the story of the Silver Kings. And my goodness, a $100,000 investment back then, and then plowing 200000 down more, digging, digging without success, digging again without success, reminding us of so many of the stories we've done in Midland, Texas, and the frackers who are doing the same thing underneath the ground that these Silver Kings were back in the day. This is Lee Habib, the Silver King's story, here on Our American Stories. Where the rain never falls, the sun never shines, it's dark as a dungeon way down in the mine well it's many a man
And we continue with our American stories, and it's time for our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries. More than 67,000 people across America are employed by Coke, and there's a good chance that their work intersects with your own story in some way. And the great folks at Coke make products that help improve medical devices, consumer electronics, vehicle safety, fabrics for clothing, filtration for clean water, and innovations for popular household brands. In the process, they're creating jobs and opening paths to opportunity for everyone to create their own American story. Learn more about Coke's incredible work at CokeIndustries.com. That's Coke, K-O-C-H, Industries.com. And here stand I with today's story. Each year, about a quarter million members of our military take off their uniforms and prepare to enter or re-enter the civilian job market. Many of these veterans have spent much, if not all, of their adult lives in the post-9-11 military, so the transition can be every bit as shocking as the first days of basic training. To help veterans with this process, the second largest private company in the country, Coke Industries, looks to a retired Army infantry officer, Colonel John Buckley. John's career took him all over the world, including multiple tours commanding soldiers in peacekeeping and combat operations in Bosnia and Iraq. He also directed two of the Army's top schools and served in key staff and planning positions throughout the United States and Europe. As John approached 30 years in the Army, he and his family began to plan for the next chapter of their lives. We were able to work an assignment back to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where I was the director of the Command and General Staff College, and I thought, what a great place to, to retire from. And I looked at the timeline, and I saw that it was time for me to go to the Transition Assistance Program, which is a one-week course that teaches you everything you need to know, or at least it's advertised to teach you everything you need to know about transitioning back into the private sector. So to put that into perspective, I had anywhere from nine to 12 months of training and preparation how to become a military person and in particular an infantry officer and I get one week to learn how to become a civilian. So I attended the course and it was one week later that I was given directives to go back to Iraq. I really didn't want to go back to Iraq. My wife really didn't want me to go back to Iraq. My kids didn't need me to go back to Iraq. And I really considered and pondered just submitting my retirement then and there and saying, I'm done and go into work somewhere, but I was not prepared. I knew I was not prepared to make the transition. So I took my one year assignment. While I was in Iraq, on some of my free time, which I didn't have a lot of it, I spent most of it on LinkedIn and did a lot of research and looking for jobs and drafting a resume. And you can imagine with, with the workload that I had in Iraq, I didn't have a lot of time and I, I really didn't have a lot of assistance, at least not close by. But I, I thought I was prepared when I returned finally a year later. I had a little over 11 months before my mandatory retirement date. I just thought that sure, I can get a job. And so I started writing these resumes that were about four pages long and sending them out to job titles, not really looking at whether I was qualified or not. 
I applied 155 times. I didn't even get a single phone call. 155 job applications, and not a single one got past the recruiters and HR. John knew that he had to do something different to get through or around this brick wall. So he turned to the skill set developed during his long and remarkable Army career. As an infantry officer, of course, you have to study your enemy. You have to know everything about them, what they think, what their equipment might be, all their challenges, how they got where they are. You've got to do a lot of in-depth research on your opponent. And that's what I began to do with the recruiters. And then subsequently, I started doing informational interviews. That's where I got out and I started talking to professionals. I started talking to former colleagues, people who had made the transition. They were useful, but in many cases, they translated their experiences back into a language that I understood, which really kept me hamstrung. And it wasn't until I started reaching out to those who never served a day in their life, I started talking to mid-level managers, higher managers, CEOs, COOs, and I approached them by saying, please tell me how come and what made you so successful in your career field. When I came off of patrols in Iraq or Bosnia, the first person I talked to was my intelligence officer. And I would have to fill in the blanks for them. What did the population look like? What were they doing? What were they saying? What were they wearing? How were they looking? How are they looking at you? And those kinds of things that help us understand the environment that we're working in. And that's how I used these informational interviews. I understood the career fields. I understood how to speak their language. I learned rather quickly that I wasn't speaking English. And through those experiences, it really improved my ability to perform in my interviews, as well as to write resumes using language and terms that were important to that career field. With this new approach and through diligent networking, John learned that many companies, including Coke Industries, were interested in hiring more veterans. And really, who better to help a company understand and hire veterans than a 30-year veteran of the United States Army? I was able to set up a, a private discussion with my future boss. I drove from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, down here to Wichita, Kansas, about a three-hour drive for about a two-hour meeting. And in that discussion, I mentioned that I read the job description and I really think the job description was narrow. It was narrow in the sense that they just wanted a recruiter. And I said, well, I would prefer that we also protect that investment. We really need to look at recruiting and retention of the military veteran. And at the conclusion of the two-hour meeting, I mentioned to my future boss, uh, so what's next? And the answer I got literally made me cry on that three-hour drive back home. He said, well, if you're interested in the job, just apply for it. Because I had fully expected at the conclusion of my two hours of, of revealing everything about a military relations leader and recruiting and retention that, that they would just offer me a job. I really expected the answer to be, well, before you get back to Leavenworth, we'll send you a contract and we'll see if we can just sign it and move on. And that's not what I got. But I applied for the job. I went through an interview process. I was rather successful in the interview. And when I, I came here for the in-person interview, I think what really struck me was that I could sense the values of the company. And when I read the book, 
the science of success and got to the chapter, chapter four, that listed the guiding principles, I leaned over to Lorraine, my wife, and I said, you know, if this is even half true, this is where I need to be. And we're listening to John Buckley, who's Coke Industries Military Relations Manager, and he himself served 30 years in the United States Army, retiring as a colonel. And he knows the problem of transition from military life to civilian life, well, A, because he experienced it, and B, because he knows his men and his women, well, as well as anybody on the ground with them for so long. And as we're winding down from the longest wars in American history, there are over 4 million veterans who've served in the post-9-11 era who have returned to civilian life. And of these post-9-11 veterans making the transition, 75%, well, they're under 34. They've gained great and distinctive skills and experiences in the military, and they may have many decades left to accomplish great things in the private sector. In Coke Industries, which employs 67,000 people in America, well, they're doing something about it. And they're bringing this message to America and to us and sponsoring these segments because, well, in the end, they want other companies to know that these men and women who served, they'll make great employees. And when we come back, more of John Buckley's story, Coke Industries Military Relations Manager, here on Our American Story. And we're back with our Opportunity America series sponsored by the great folks at Coke Industries. And we just heard how John Buckley transitioned from his 30-year-long career as an Army infantry officer into a new career at Coke Industries as their military relations manager. Let's return to Stan and the rest of John Buckley's story. As John carved out his new role as Coke Industries military relations manager, he kept turning to the eight principles of market-based management. The words may be a little different than the ones that John grew up with in the Army, but the underlying values were aligned. Now, if folks across this massive organization actually walked the walk, then John could trust his new civilian colleagues without needing to know them personally. That's something that was possible in the military, but is quite rare outside of it. A veteran employee came to me just after he received his annual review and, and he got a glowing review and he, he also got a, a bonus, he got a pay raise. It was unexpected to him that he would be rewarded so much for the value that he created. But his problem was he found a job that really would satisfy him and it was in a different Coke company. And so I challenged this veteran employee. I said, loyalty is not a guiding principle. It should be probably, and it, it's probably a component of a lot of the guiding principles, but self-actualization is a guiding principle that I would challenge your supervisor on. He had not yet talked to a supervisor. He was afraid to approach his supervisor because he was afraid that the supervisor would get very upset and say, I just gave you a bonus. I just gave you a pay raise. Why are you want to leave me? And when he went back and he challenged the supervisor, the supervisor picked up the phone and called the other hiring manager, learn more about the job, 
discuss the qualities, the strengths, and the skills and abilities of this veteran employee. And now the happiest veteran employee in Coke Industries is, is the one who challenged his supervisor and now has the job that he really wanted. John felt increasingly at home in his new civilian career, but he realized that too many of his fellow veterans were on much rockier journeys. Two recent studies independently showed that about 50% of transitioning veterans leave their first civilian job within the very first year, and that number grows to almost 80% in 18 months. So John began to actively build relationships and programs to reduce these barriers to transition. And he starts with the largest gap between the military and civilian worlds. When you look at the fact that less than half of 1% of our American population is currently in uniform, you can maybe appreciate that communication and cultural gap. 80% of our military enlistees mentioned in surveys that somebody in their family served in the military and 35% of them say that their parents served in the military, then you can see that the segment of our society that is serving in the military is getting smaller and smaller. It's becoming a family business. And so the gap between those who serve and those whom we protect is getting larger and really more challenging to overcome. And so some things to understand as a business leader who is interested in hiring veterans is, well, what value do these veterans bring to me? And when you understand the performance, when you understand the critical creative thinking and the breadth of their experiences, their maturity, right away you can see the benefits of hiring a veteran. But then you got to look at how do you help them acclimate? How do you help them assimilate into your company and into the private sector? A lot of military people are used to getting a new job practically every two years. And what's interesting is to understand how they do that. After a new job, maybe within six weeks and certainly within six months, you've already scoped out the next job. You know where it is, you know if you have to make a change, if you have to move, you know if it's an education requirement in between there, if you've got to demonstrate certain skills or abilities. You start networking a little bit to see if you can stay there at the military base. You take into your family's condition or situation. You have to start looking for an assignment where you can stay stationary. That might mean you have to go overseas while your family stays put. But all these very, very complex things have to be thought about as you choose your next step in your career progression. And all that is lost when you come into the private sector. In many cases, because the turnover isn't nearly as great, you're not getting a new commander every two years, you're not getting a new job every two years, the veteran comes into the company and they feel like, well, I've been here six months and nobody's talked to me about what's next. And a lot of private sector companies don't do that. They may wait for the first or possibly the second annual review before they start considering what's next. And culturally, that's a slap in the face to a veteran. So there are simple things you can do as a company, just have the conversation sooner. It's not really changing anything you do, it may change the timing. Sit down and say, you know, you're holding this job and, and here are some opportunities that are available to you. And these are some things we can orient on and maybe start working a plan for them to get the skills and experiences. Something that shows that you're really interested in their career development. Another major culture gap 
is the perception among many civilians that all veterans are suffering from debilitating post-traumatic stress. Between 11 and 20% of veterans who have served in Iraq or Afghanistan do indeed report having PTSD in a given year, figures that are actually not too far off from the civilian population who experience all sorts of traumas outside of war. John knows this firsthand and treats it as something that we can acknowledge and overcome together instead of apart. I work in a private office with a door and outside of my door is a cubicle farm, you could call it, with about seats for about 40 different people. And then across the way is an administrative area. And that's where we make copies and use a three-hole punch. And if my door is slightly ajar and somebody uses that three-hole punch, I become acutely aware of my environment because it sounds to me like somebody's chambering around. Now, for me, I haven't yet dived under a table or anything like that, so I, I, I'm able to control it. But other people who may have, other veterans who have, have been in some serious issues may have some more severe reactions. But if you understand the resources that are available to these veterans and a, a company that has a good retention program would have these numbers and websites available to themselves can introduce these things to the veteran employee. The Veterans Administration is getting much better in some of its post-traumatic stress counseling and mentoring that can help the veteran understand how to manage anxiety, how to manage these issues, and over time they can manage them to the point where you would never even know that they have an issue. And in the big picture, the skills and experiences that veterans bring to their civilian employers far outweigh these cultural frictions. Veterans and civilians may have different life experience and use different vocabulary, but every workplace requires quality people and good leadership. And good leadership is good leadership, military or civilian. If businesses have a challenge and they need a leader to do it, probably without much orientation, you could take just about any senior leader out of the military, non-commissioned officer, warrant officer, or commissioned officer, and they could solve the problem rather quickly. I could give you one example. I had just reported to the Pentagon, and I was working directly for the Army Chief of Staff. So the individual who was responsible to train and equip the U.S. Army, I was a strategic planner working directly for him. I wasn't there even a week before... Abu Ghraib came into the public eyes. And so those don't remember, Abu Ghraib was the name of a prison in Iraq where some just awful abuse, prisoner abuse and some other activities were going on that was just absolutely outside of our values and was unacceptable to everybody around, but it happened nonetheless. So I'm a strategic planner for the chief of staff of the army. I'm an infantryman. And every issue that was raised were associated with military police and security police. Yet, I was directed to run a staff that was going to identify the issues. I was required to study up to 22 different investigations and their results that were done by various organizations from the CIA to the Department of Defense to those that were funded by the government and Congress and whatnot, and I had to analyze every single one of those and come up with a strategy that would prevent us from 
from an Abu Ghraib ever occurring again. You talk about something that is way outside of my scope, way outside of my area of comfort, certainly outside of my expertise, and I was a young lieutenant colonel responding directly to a four-star general, and I was able to solve the problem, and I created programs, I created the solutions across the, the board to include the entire strategy, and many of those programs are still in effect today. And, and I'm just using that as a, as a small example, not to highlight anything I accomplished, but absolutely to, to emphasize that many, many senior leaders were put into areas that are well outside their scope and areas of expertise and succeeded based on their abilities to lead and manage. And the private sector and the business leaders can't overlook that. You want a good leader, you want a good manager, you can rely on just about anybody who's had a successful military career because they can see through the stress they can lead, coach, teach, and mentor somebody to success. And you've been listening to John Buckley, a retired Army colonel, 30 years serving our country, now working at Coke Industries as a military relations manager. Our Opportunity America series brought to us by the great folks at Coke Industries. Go to CokeIndustries.com. That's K-O-C-H Industries.com. And by the way, that number of 50% of transitioning vets leaving their jobs, their first jobs in the first year, well, they're working hard to fix that. John and his team at Coke, their stories here on Our American Stories.